Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 29, where we're traveling back to 1971 and the 26th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Mario Davidovsky, for his electroacoustic work, Synchronisms Number 6. So I thought we'd begin today. This, this is kind of a special episode because I think it's the it's first... A very special episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. It, I the mean, after school special of <laughs> Hearing the Pulitzers. Yes, every episode of Hearing the Pulitzers is special, but this one might be more special because I think it might it's the first time that either of us, this is a composition that one of us has actually played. That's true. And I have not played this one, so that <laughs> would process be... process of elimination. elimination that it's would Andrew. be Andrew, who's played this one. And it's for electronic media and piano and... I'm just amazed uh, that people can play this stuff because it just looks so complicated on the score. Well, I didn't play the electronic part. Uh, no, just no, the you, piano part. Good, which makes it a little bit easier. That's a good thing. But uh, tell us, tell, tell us about your experience with this piece, why you picked it, and what it was like. Sure. So this was um, my senior recital as an undergraduate. I was playing. Um, Schumann Papillon. Oh, good piece. I played um, Schubert A Major Sonata, and I played Synchronisms <laughs> number six wow. for piano electronic sound. So <laughs> very different. Um, no, my uh, undergraduate teacher, David Allen Ware, actually suggested this to me and said, you seem to like modern music. <laughs> you know, it's an understatement. Yep, um, yep. You seem to like modern music and like figuring these things out, and I think you might like this challenge. Uh, so he gave it to me. I spent time learning first the piano part without the tape part. So I just got the piano part under my fingers. And then this was back in the age of dat tape. So when I bought for it, I... <laughs> I was going to ask you, did it come on a reel-to-reel yeah, or I, was it a cassette? I have, have my score here for 1650 from Theodore Presser Company, and it came with a dat tape yeah. for high-quality audio playback <laughs> in the 1990s. Um, so then I had to practice with the dat tape to kind of get the synchronization. But, you know, he's... Uh, and we talk a little bit about this when we get to the piece itself, but uh, one of the great things that Davidovsky does is he puts lots of fermatas, so there's time for everything to mm-hmm. make sure that you're synced up. He has a really great sync points. It's really uh, well done in that way. We can talk a little bit more about that. But uh, my professor was absolutely right. I loved working on this piece. I loved kind of figuring it all out. And it was one of those surprises that when I played it, Everyone liked it. Well, that was my next question: was yeah. how, what was the reception? Did it go over well? Because you've got two staples with Schumann and Schubert. That's right. So, no, everyone wanted to talk to me about it because they had never heard anything like it, and they've heard Schumann, they've yeah. heard Schubert, but they hadn't heard Davidovsky, and uh, just the novelty of seeing you know two speakers up there next to me on next to the piano as I'm playing, and just the the cleverness, I think, of the musical textures. That's what, at the reception afterwards, everyone wanted to talk to me about Davidovsky. No one cared about Schumann. <laughs> See, it just goes to show that if you sell it and you've got a good modern piece, the audience will the audience follow. Will yeah. All right, well, let's see who was Davidovsky. So that's my experience with this piece, and we can talk more about that when we get behind the notes. But did you know Davidovsky's music at all before this? No, this was actually the only piece I'd ever heard of. I've, I've the only thing I knew about him was he was super academic, another one of those Babbitt 
type composers with, and he was affiliated with Columbia and Harvard and Princeton and all the Ivy Leagues. But this is the only piece I knew of and I found it on a cassette. I think I checked it out from the library and recorded it on a cassette. Nice. Uh, yes, because I, I thought it was cool. I don't, I'd never heard anything like that. So I never checked out the other, what are there, 12? 12 synchronisms. Yeah, I never, I've never listened to any of the other ones, but uh, this one I liked. So I unfortunately, I have very little, very limited experience with his music, and I, I'm curious to know more. Yeah. Well, I'm the same way. I know this piece and... That was about it. <laughs> yeah. But he is. I mean, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about Leon Kirchner. He's in that kind of trajectory. We yeah. see uh, interesting that Kirchner is the first, you know, electronic kind of uh, piece to use electronics. And here we've seen several since then that have incorporated electronics and even last time a fully electronic piece. All right. So this is totally a kind of shift uh, for the Pulitzer. Well, let's talk a little bit about the background and telling the story. Telling the story. So Davidovsky was born. This is interesting. I don't. I don't know. Would you call him a Latin American composer? Because he was born in Buenos Aires or close to Buenos Aires in Argentina, and from a family of observant Jews from Eastern Europe. So fleeing World War or before uh, what was going to happen in World War Two. Uh, so I don't think of him as really being. A Latin American composer as much. Well, I think he came to the United States when he's in his 20s. So he meets Aaron Copeland, um, and Aaron Copeland says, you know, come up to Tanglewood. He meets Milton Babbitt. Milton Babbitt says, you should come and stay here. And he actually ends up working at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center, which is one of these kind of key points for the propagation of electronic music in the United States. And because of that connection, I mean, in my mind, he's always been, oh, he's that <laughs> Columbia Princeton exactly. Electronic Music Center composer, yeah. not, oh, he's uh, an Argentinian composer. So mm. I think it is interesting that where we first encounter someone and how we think about them plays into how we conceptualize them. Mm -hmm. I think that's very true, because I'd, I'd, I'd have to look and see the rest of his works, but if they're anything like this one, they're probably the super modernist, uh, high modern, electronic, experimental tradition. Uh, and that's, I don't know, it's kind of interesting to... Well, there's no Argentinian folk tunes uh, in no, The Synchronisms no. number 6. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he used that in any of his other music, but that's typically, again, um, thinking about our kind of mid-century uh, Western European lens. When we talk about a composer and say, oh, they're XYZ from that country, we think, oh, well, we give them that moniker if they used that music as a representative part. So... When we talk about right. a composer from Spain, we expect them to be using Spanish music as opposed to you know, someone who's more international. And his approach was, in terms of composition, more international. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and not only that, he's very different than our previous composers who used electronic music because he actually had a real interest in it. Uh, when we talked about Charles Warrenin, that was kind a one of a one-off, as right. was the Leon Kirchner string quartet was kind of his experimentation with it too but just the amount of electronic works of the 12 synchronisms as we mentioned and i'm sure there's other pieces that he wrote too that well are, and he composed the synchronisms for so long so the first it, one yeah. is 1963 the last one was in 2006 so we're talking 40 years yeah. to compose these synchronisms now there's a kind of gush of them for the first 10 years so flute the first one flute clarinet violin and cello for the second those are both in 1963 64 is one just for cello 
67 is one for chorus and electronic That I've got to hear. Really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, 69, percussion quintet. Uh, 1970, the piano. Uh, 1973, orchestra. 1974, wind quintet. Hmm. And then he stops for a while. And the last four are kind of spread out. So uh, 1988, violin. 1992, guitar. 2005, bass. And then 2006, clarinet, the last one. So it, he, he moves away from electronic music as he moves into the 80s, but he still keeps coming back to this idea of how can we have uh, acoustic live instruments in conversation with pre-recorded electronic instruments. And that's fascinating, too, thinking about just the development of technology. Think of 1963. You're definitely on reel-to-reels right. at that time. You're splicing things together. Splicing, yeah, splicing tape, but then by 2006, you're probably you're doing digital everything world. digitally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those last four are kind of after MIDI was developed. Yeah. So yeah. you're in a completely new world, computer technology. I mean... I'd be interested, as I say, I've, when we're, we're done, I'm going to listen to some of the later ones and see if the, it's still the same kind of sound palette or... Oh, that's also true. If they sound quite different. I don't so know. So not just the, the mechanism by which you make it, but the, the sound world. Exactly. How different it is. You're not just spinning oscillators no. <laughs> to create sounds anymore. No. Everything is done digitally. Yeah, by exactly. The time you get to, especially those last two, 2005, 2006. And he lived a long life, so it really is almost lifelong here, because he 1934 and then died in 2019 at the age of 85. So probably what he's best known for, I would say, are these electronic, electroacoustic works. So I guess we don't call them that now. They call them fixed media works, or what do they? No, uh, there's like a. They still use electroacoustic. Do they? Because yeah. I've seen like our our composition concerts. Sometimes I'll see media with flute or right. it'll say it differently but I, I i know it as electroacoustic so that's what it is and back that's in this, our day back in our day that's what it was called well and so. this was electronic sounds so even better electronic yeah. sounds yeah. Well, maybe it's time to go behind the notes behind the notes all right, so David Ofsky, as we've talked about, was fascinated by technology, fascinated by electronic sound. In fact, that's one of the things that he came to the United States to do, was to be interested in and, and focus on uh, electronic sounds. And we've kind of hinted at this, but the way that he would have been creating these sounds is really rudimentary. Yeah. Um, he would have been creating sound waves by spinning oscillators. <laughs> he would have been you know, taking tape splicing them, taking razor blades, cutting apart magnetic tape, taping it back together and recording it. I mean, this is a fascinating labor-intensive process. Um, and one of the things that's so interesting to me about this piece is looking at it in the history of the Pulitzers, it is by far the shortest piece to ever win. Yes. Seven and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't change. Yeah, that's right. It would be fixed. You have yeah. a fixed tape that you're playing with. So this piece is going to be about seven and a half minutes every single time you play it. And that's tiny. It's a it's like a miniature to win the Pulitzer Prize compared to, you know, the big operas yes. or the symphonies or, or the string quartets. Or the last electronic piece that we talked about Warren's that was, piece was very know, long. Very long. Yeah. And so you, so it's fascinating that uh, this piece was seen as important enough that even at seven and a half minutes was worthy of the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. And the uh, electronic sounds to me also it really is reminiscent of the Columbia uh, those it pictures is. you see of Milton Babbitt standing in front of that enormous console the with bank the, of computers the bank plugging of, in yes with the plugs and everything because uh, he was at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Center so I do think some of the sounds 
that he uses I've heard in Philomel or some mm -hmm. of Babbitt's electronic music too. So it's that same palette, very different than Stockhausen, let's say, who right. was writing 10 years earlier, eight years earlier on this kind of music. Not the same sounds with Gesang der Junglinge or something, but it's, it's a very distinctive sound. But to me, what's fascinating, I think this goes along, he was uneasy with the prospect of music that was immune to human interpretation. Right. I, I find this piece works particularly well because the piano, and you can speak to this directly, mm -hmm. but the piano and electronics are very intertwined. They are in unison at times, which I could imagine would be a disaster if you get off from the <laughs> right. from the tape. Uh, but they're, the lines will follow each other, and just the first note uh, that you play a G, I think, and then it mm -hmm. it then comes in electronically, kind of thing. It's well, it's this fascination, and we actually have in just a moment. We'll listen to that opening because it, it's the key. And Davidovsky, in the interview that I read with him was talking about how he liked to use the electronics to really augment whatever instrument they were accompanying. So in this case, he said, what's the thing about the piano that we're always trying to fix? And that's the fact that it decays rapidly. Sustain. Yeah, yeah you, it's hard to sustain the piano. And so he wanted to flip that. He said, well, instead of having attack and then decay, what if we had decay and then attack? Can we flip that? Hmm. And so you get that here at the very opening and have about the first 30 seconds we can listen to of the opening. So I think what you hear there is you get the initial attack of the piano. That fades away, but if you listen closely, you can then hear the electronic sounds come in and then reverse it. And so it's almost like a mirror image because you go right back and you hear the G then in the electronics. So it's bum, piano, go away, bump, right? So you get this interesting kind of mirror image, something you couldn't do on a piano. You couldn't make that sound. And then if you keep listening to the rest of the piece, that's what you hear again and again is this kind of interplay of the piano and the electronic sounds to the point where it's a little bit odd playing it because, <laughs> I can't imagine. because there are points at which you're pushing down notes on the piano and you're not sure if the sound is coming from you and the piano or it's coming from the electronic oh, sounds weird. because he says in this score that you're supposed to have the piano and then immediately behind the piano should be one of the speakers and the other should be at the other end of the piano so from an audience perspective, they're coming from the same place. The sounds are coming from the same place. Weird. That's got to be kind of discombobulating when you're playing it because you're just not sure sometimes you know, what's coming out. And how do you deal with you know thinking of some of the the gestures or the the dynamics and things like that? Because the tape is fixed; it can't change. It's not change. You can do something different. So, do you have to accentuate things more, or because you have to? Is there like a volume setting on that you? set the tape at or I don't know how you even well you have to set the tape you go when I was setting the tape I would go to the climax and I would play it and have the tape playing at the same time so we could get the, the okay, climax and that's... say okay this is this is as loud as both of us are going to be is that balanced and then go back but it's interesting as you're looking at the score one of the ways that Davidovsky did this is you have the piano part written traditional piano notation but the electronic music part is written almost like a piano notation it has yeah. its own dynamics 
It even has, in some cases, the chords that they're playing. So it's almost as if you're playing a duet with another piano just in what you're looking at. So you know, aha, before I even get there, this is supposed to be mezzo forte. I'm supposed to be forte. So I'm supposed to be louder than the fixed media here. Or at this other place, it's the opposite. They're supposed to be super loud, and I'm supposed to be quiet. And so you have to kind of read both scores at the same time to modulate, to know, all right, but you do that when you're playing a duet anyway. Well, that's true. Yeah. Right? It's just you're playing a duet with a partner that isn't going to change, so you have to <laughs> modulate yourself. Um, so I think once you get used to the kind of <laughs> the fact that, that tape is not going to change, <laughs> yeah. it's just going to keep marching, and that if you make a mistake, you can't repeat. You have to just keep going forward. Um, it's interesting to do the duet, and you really do begin to hear the, the parts really intertwining. In a way, it, it kind of... I would think it would help you as a performer because you you can see... Like it's already there. It, so the way he wrote it, obviously, the it's not supposed to. You know, the tape's not going to change. Right. But it's there for you to judge exactly. how loudly you're going to play, or how loud, softly, or the articulations or things. So it's almost like performance information for you as the live performer. Oh, it's exactly what it is, and it's really helpful. I mean, in some ways, it's almost like you're playing with an orchestra, and you have the 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 reduction for the orchestra there on your page so you can know, all right, the orchestra's gonna come in here, and then I'm gonna come in, and this is the relationship we need to have dynamically. So it, it's almost as if you're playing with a live partner, although it happens to be <laughs> something that Davidovsky created back in 1970. I know. <laughs> very, very interesting kind of conception here. And thinking about the timbres, lots of different, uh, well, I don't know, are they different? Do you see this as being, with our other electronic pieces so far, how, these sounds and these timbres fit in because we're you have some of the same bleep bloops that right. you've, we've heard before uh, but they're very tightly intertwined and you've got these great gestures like these mm -hmm. kind of they're, I don't know they're tremolos or right well tremolo is one of the ways pianists have tried to overcome the decay of a piano ah. and so the pianist is doing tremolos and then the electronic part is doing tremolos and they merge in really interesting ways I thought we can listen a little bit to the climax of the piece. That's my favorite part. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And you almost hear the how organic he makes the electronic part because you'll hear these really melodies kind of bouncing, almost like hocket between <laughs> the electronic part and the piano bouncing back and forth. And then this tremolo that just kind of explodes. And I think you can really kind of tell this, this organic nature of the two parts really combining. So that's your favorite part. Uh, it is my favorite. It's the part. best part to play. I, I can imagine it's very rewarding. You just to let play go. That. All that. You're just banging away just on the piano, bang. just letting it go, and it doesn't matter because the electronic part is roaring in the background. Of the I mean, there's even like this layer of static. It's really uh, yeah. a fascinating sound. And if you look in the score, um, he just creates this kind of like hatching <laughs> oh, <laughs> in cool. the score yeah. to show you that he's filling in the entire kind of sonic spectrum as you're doing this. Now, in terms of traditional analysis of this piece, I think it would be very hard. I don't know. It, I'm guessing it's probably serial if he's been, or there's some serial elements if he was working with Babbitt and in the Columbia milieu. I'm guessing that there's the, the piano parts are probably pretty serialized. Uh, if not serial, there's at least sets that you can see. Recurring. Recurring yeah. patterns and recurring... Um, 
chords. So I think that that might be a useful way if you wanted to kind of get into it analytically uh, to go and figure out what are the sets. But I've never looked at it. No. There's pr it's probably been analyzed. I've just never looked at the analysis. I'm um, sure. I was too busy trying to get the notes <laughs> just under my finger just to just, survive. <laughs> just playing it is uh, accomplishment enough. <laughs> But formally, I, I, it seems very free to me. Like, I, I can't yeah. find any kind of... Although, the, the, doesn't the G come back? It, it does. That yeah. opening motive does come back. Um, and in fact, uh, in some ways, it's, it's, it's very economic writing. I mean, in seven and a half minutes, um, the same kind of motives come back. Uh, when you get to the end, you feel like you've gotten back to where you began. So it's very satisfying in terms of, of the ending. Um, so in that way, I think it's absolutely you could kind of craft whatever the, the form is and do that pretty successfully. I've just never done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should see what other people thought about this. Hit or miss? All right, well, let's talk about where it premiered because that's an interesting kind of uh, history. It is. It was premiered... Oddly enough, at Tanglewood. Which is uh, where he first met Aaron, Aaron Copeland. Copeland. So it's coming home. Well, and it's going to come home even more when we look at the reader, the jury report, which it, uh, it's a fascinating it's, jury. It is a fascinating jury for a lot of reasons. Uh, yes, yeah, so this was on a program, kind of an odd program. It was in August of 1970. And at the top, it says Tanglewood, artistic director, Seiji Ozawa, Gunther Schuller, and Leonard Bernstein, advisor. And we have a piece by some people I've never heard of, like Jean-Étienne Marie, mm. Barbara Kolb, okay. Davidovsky. Then at the intermission, we have John Heiss, movements for three flutes. Boy, that's a piece I definitely want to dig out. Uh, Donald Leibert and George Wilson. Okay. So uh, not household names. Not household names. <laughs> this it was clearly a try new things concert. Y yes, very much so. And I could and Gunther Schuller conducts uh, at least one or two of the pieces here. So it might have been his instituting uh, these types of pieces because I don't see Bernstein or Ozawa mm -hmm. necessarily into it. But um, yeah, pretty interesting. So are you ready for the jury report? I'm ready for the jury report. Okay. What did the jury have to say it's, about Davidovsky? It's short. So remember, we've had we've had quite the journey with our jury reports in the 60s. So I think things have settled a little bit. It is the unanimous decision of this year's music jury that the Pulitzer Prize be given to, Synchronisms number 6. This work, com commissioned by the pianist Robert Miller, was given its premiere performance at the Berkshire Music Festival on August 19, 1970. It shows a mastery of a new medium and its imaginative use in combination with the solo pianoforte. That's high praise. Very high praise. So who's giving this high praise? Well, Aaron Copeland Aaron is the Cop chair. So, hmm. so strange. Hmm. How about that? And then we have two other very well-known, distinguished people. Virgil Thompson. Another Pulitzer Prize winner. Yep, another former winner. And Robert Kraft. Well known for his advocacy of Stravinsky and other new music, especially yes. of the Schoenbergian school. Exactly. So what do you think about the, before I give you the runner-up, uh, what do you think about the fact that it, is a scene, it's kind of in a way continuing the Pulitzer in, 
in group. It is. It's Copeland. Still, it's so Copeland, um, Virgil Thompson, and it's giving it to another Ivy League composer. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially if you look at the the previous few winners, we're still in that kind of Northeast yep. boys club of composition. We haven't moved. What's changed is the type of music they're they're awarding. I wouldn't expect Aaron Copeland and Virgil Thompson, of all people, to say, yes, a piece with <laughs> piano and electronic sound. That seems completely... You know, Robert Kraft, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But the other two, shocking. And I think that's a testament to how organically he combines the two. Very good point. Yeah. It, it doesn't seem... Like the Warren and just seems. I don't so think they ever would have awarded no. Warren in this year with <laughs> no. this jury. No way, no way. I, I just wonder the the Copeland connection since he's kind of responsible for, for Davidovsky coming. Yeah, yeah, kind of looks a little fishy, but uh, any case, the second choice of the jury is. I know this is one of your favorite all time works, exercises all root, by. <laughs> I'm by, still waiting. I don't know what you're talking about. By Earl Kim. Okay. Wow. <laughs> this work was sponsored by the, wait for it, Harvard Music Department. Well, there you go. Yeah. And the Fromm Foundation was premiered at Sanders Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts on January 15th. It is a dramatic performance involving singing, ballet, film, and speech. It shows ingenious and sensitive solutions to both vocal and instrumental problems. Mm. So they had okay. 56 uh, applications this year. That's an enormous number. It is. It says a very impressive now. And amount. they chose a miniature. Yes. Ah, yeah. It shows a very short, compact piece that's very skillfully put together, I would well, say. Well, two months later, so this was August, in October, Miller took it to the, uh, into New York City and performed it on a concert in the Kaufman Concert Hall. And this is what he combined it with. This is fascinating. All 20th century. So Stravinsky, Serenade in A, Schoenberg, Opus 23, five piano pieces, Busoni, Toccata, Davidovsky, Synchronisms number six, Bernard Rand, uh, Tre Espressoni, <laughs> and uh, first performances of five pieces by Stepan Volpa. Wow. So it's quite a fascinating concert. concert. Yeah. You would be exhausted at the end yes. of the concert. But uh, Donald Hinehan, our good friend in yep. the New York Times, wrote about the concert, and he singled out the Davidovsky, which at this point had not received the Pulitzer yet. No, no. But he singled that one out that he wanted to talk about. He said, The Davidovsky was first heard this summer at Tanglewood, where it proved one of the more attractive pieces of the festival's contemporary music week. This time, under Mr. Miller's hands, the same that played the premiere, <laughs> incidentally, Mr. Davidovsky's inventive score for piano and electronic sounds made a stronger impression, if anything, for the aural sensitivity with which the composer kept the two disparate sound sources in close interplay throughout the piece. That's very good it's review. It's very, very positive hype. and describes very well what the listening experience is. It really is. does. And you can tell how much he appreciated it when uh, talking about the Rand score. He says that it sounded like too many other examples of that expressively constipated genre. <laughs> So it wasn't just that he was giving out good information. You know, it wasn't just that he was saying good things about contemporary pieces. He, no. He's, he still had his zingers in there. That's a good one, too. That's, that's a good one. <laughs> so I, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. Well, I spent too much time with it for it to be anything but a hit. It has to be a hit. Absolutely. I mean, I spent months learning it and performing it. 
several places. Uh, so yeah, this is actually of the electronic pieces that we've seen in the Pulitzer so far, I think this is by far the most successful. Yes. So where are you? Oh, absolutely a hit too. I, the fact that I recorded it off a oh, CD, CD and cassette right. uh, shows that I thought there was something great about it and something that I really found attractive. So, uh, And knowing that my podcasting partner here uh, has, a, has a connection with it too, makes it even more of a hit, I think. Now so. you're bugging me to play it. I'll have to pull out my dat tape. I know. I want to hear that dat tape if we can find somebody to... Yeah, maybe uh, Upstairs in the, the recording studio in the building where we're recording today, there's a whole bunch of old reel-to-reels and all these old players. So maybe there's a dat we could scrounge up and check it <laughs> sure. out. Sure. <Yeah. laughs> and our students will look at that and go, what is this What that you're is doing? this thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Mario Davidovsky. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode when we return to the roots of the Pulitzer with a work for orchestra, Windows by Jacob Druckmann. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.